Well, our time going through the Psalms is drawing near to an end. We have this week and next week, and then we'll begin our study of First Timothy. And so three weeks ago, we studied Psalm 1 and then Psalm 2, and last week, Psalm 3. So please open your Bible to Psalm 4T. <laughs> Someone's got to keep Pastor Gary's legacy alive. Um, please open to Psalm 40. And... Um, as we turn there, I just want to make a few observations from it. The title of this morning's message is The Song of the Redeemed. And, and Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 3 showed some of the variety of things that the Psalter deals with. Psalm 1, this two paths concept, wisdom and folly, life and death, blessing and curse. Psalm 2, focusing on the rebellion of the nations, the coming kingdom and judgment of Messiah King, and the invitation to repent, the invitation to find refuge in the Son. Psalm 3, a cry for deliverance by David from his enemies. And so all three of the first Psalms we've looked at have been singularly focused. The, the topic they have at hand is focused, and yet sometimes life isn't that simple, is it? Sometimes life can be complicated. We can have lots of things going on. Psalm 40 is probably my favorite psalm. It's the first psalm that really struck a chord with me after becoming a Christian. And one of the reasons I love it is there's so much going on in David's life. We're going to read through it in a moment, and David will be recounting past deliverance, and he'll be instructing others, and he'll be giving testimony and delighting in God. And then he'll start crying out for more deliverance. And he'll start confessing his sin. And ultimately, he'll be uniting with other believers to worship the living God. So let's read Psalm 40 and look at this movement of the, the complicated life of David, of all that's going on. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. 
My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Dear Lord, as we study your word now, we just pray that you would um, open our eyes to see the glory of your word. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Lord, give the increase. Um, Grow us up in your salvation through your word. And help us to understand your mind, the mind of David in this psalm, and how, how you would have us rejoice and cry out to you and how your grace is all sufficient for our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we dive into Psalm 40, because of its length, I broke it up into six sections, and we're just going to make some observations from each section. We're going to move along somewhat quickly. There's so much here, but one of the things I want to highlight before we dive in is there's a theme that recurs in just about every section going from the one to the many. There's a private, corporate shift. And what happens to David privately between him and God in almost every stanza moves to the corporate. And the theme is that our individual lives fuel our corporate worship. What we're doing here today corporately becomes the sum, or maybe greater than the sum, of the individual parts of our private worship. It's a big theme. We'll be drawing attention to it. Yes, we have an individual, personal relationship with the Lord. And yet that individual relationship needs to move us into corporate circles, into corporate praise and testimony. And it's seen very clearly in this psalm, so we'll be keeping our eyes out for that. So we're going to look now at the first three verses. David is recounting previous redemption. Psalm 40 comes at the head of previous three psalms, starting in Psalm 37, that all recount waiting on God, and then waiting some more on God. And then Psalm 39, waiting some more on God. And so Psalm 40, when it triumphantly announces God's deliverance, there's some, there's some weight to this. The Hebrew, literally, of the opening phrase is, waiting, I waited. You ever feel like that? Waiting, I waited? This isn't David waiting for a morning or for an afternoon. This, this evidence is a much longer period of time. David's been waiting, and he's been waiting, and he's been waiting, and God answered him. And so our first point is the Lord delivers in his own time. The Lord delivers in his own time. Waiting, I waited. And so David, we don't know what this dilemma is. We don't know if it was sickness, if it was personal danger, enemies to the kingdom of Israel, his own sin. We don't know. And in some senses, not knowing 
makes it easier for us to identify with this psalm. Who hasn't been in distress? Who hasn't had to wait upon the Lord? And so this is David's own personal experience, but by nature of writing it and giving the song to Israel and to the scripture, the Lord is telling us that there's truth here for us to be instructed by. That when we're in difficult circumstances, we should wait on the Lord and keep waiting on the Lord. The Lord may not be early, but he is always on time. And so he delivers in his own time. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, there is no temptation that has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may bear up underneath it. And so God promises you, if you're in a trial, if you're waiting on God, you have a promise for one of two things. Either the Lord will give you sustaining grace. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, God will not allow the trial to be greater than the grace he gives to endure the trial. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 13 promises, God will give you a way of escape. He'll deliver you. Now, we all would just like God to remove the trial. But sometimes the glory of God is seen in us waiting patiently. So God delivers, the Lord delivers in his own time when he sees best. And you think of, in Scripture, some of the examples of people waiting. David waiting for his kingdom to be given to him as he flees from Saul for years after being anointed. Think of Joseph waiting in jail. And we could just go through the the Scripture. We could go through talking to each other in this room about waiting on God, and yet God's timing is perfect. Secondly, the Lord delivers to produce praise. Notice that. The Lord ripped him out of this pit. David likens it to a muddy well, a deep, muddy, wet pit, like quicksand. He's sinking. He can't get out. The Lord pulls him out, and he puts him on a rock, and he establishes his footsteps. But the Lord doesn't stop there. He puts a new song in my mouth, verse 3, a song of praise to our God. The Lord's deliverance is there to produce praise, to produce worship. That's, that's where individual deliverance moves towards is praise, the opening of our mouth to extol God. And this is an important theme. God is desirous of praise. He wants his people praising him and he gives us grace and we should be opening our mouths and praising God. And in our next point, we see the Lord delivers to save others. Because what happens is, when the Lord puts a new song in our mouth, when we are telling others of what God has done in our life, others hear. And in hearing of God's goodness in our lives, others learn to fear and trust the Lord. And so this individual deliverance of David moves towards a more public praise which moves towards others being converted to faith in the living God. Do you see how that works? The Lord delivered me. The Lord put a new song in my mouth and I sang it. And many, many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. Verse 3 says. Which tells us that God's individual works of saving in our lives, God's individual help is meant for a greater good. It's bigger than ourselves. 
And for keeping our mouths shut in a sort of mock humility, a stoic, not wanting to bring attention to ourselves, we're really robbing God of his glory and we are hindering God's purposes in bringing others to faith. Rather, we should be a people who are praising God for the things he's done in our lives, sharing it with others so we could encourage their faith and so that others might be strengthened in their faith and who knows, perhaps some might even come to faith as they hear about the mighty works God has done. So David begins in the first three verses recounting previous redemption. He waited, the Lord answered, David praised him. Many saw and learned to fear God as a result. Secondly, David's pious reflection in verses 4 to 5. And now it's, it's as if David dwelling on this theme of individual deliverance, whatever that deliverance is, broadens his scope in general. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you or proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Interestingly, this is the third time in four Psalms that we're told where to find blessedness. In Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't go after sinful things, but rather who delights in the law of the Lord. So there's a blessedness to be found in delighting in God's law. In Psalm 2, the last verse, we read, blessed is everyone who takes refuge in the Son. And here, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Isn't that a wonderful picture from the Psalms? Blessedness is found in delighting yourself in Scripture, in hiding yourself and, and finding refuge in the Son of God, blessedness is found in trusting in God. This, this, is, this is what the Psalms is, are opening up to us, showing us about the blessed life, where true spiritual blessing and health is, is in loving God's word, in hiding yourself in his Son, and in trusting the living God. And of course, this trusting of God is always seen in contrast to trusting other things. It wouldn't be hard to trust God if there wasn't an opportunity cost. The world is filled with things that promise protection, deliverance, safety, and they're going to be in contrast to trusting in God. Even last week we saw David fled Jerusalem, and yet he understood, I'm in the hands of the living God. And here, David contrasts it with, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. And frequently, that's the real challenge in a trial. When we're waiting, when God doesn't seem to be answering, will we continue to wait and trust him? Or will we go after something else? And David is reminding us, Oh no, don't stop waiting. Don't go after anything else. There is great blessing to be found in trusting in God. And you don't want to lose the blessing of trusting in God. And then as David overflows with this theme, he begins to, as it were, connect this one act of salvation that God has done in his life, this one deliverance, to the many other great works of God. It sort of starts spreading in his mind. You have multiplied, 
O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. So we started with one act of deliverance. And now that's just reminding the psalmist of all the other great things God has done. And, and David's mind is beginning to see that our God is a great Savior and he is just constantly working redemption and delivering his people. It's not just one act of salvation. It's not just one deliverance, but thousands, millions. David would say more than can be numbered. But we can forget about that sometimes if we're not meditating on what God has done for us, if we're not moving that along to praise. So blessedness is found in trusting in the Lord. Next, we need to remember and tell of the Lord's mighty deeds in your life. Remember and tell. It's as if David had forgotten all the things the Lord had done while he was focusing on his trial. I mean, that can happen, right? We get tunnel vision. We've got a trial. We have a difficulty in our life. And everything else just sort of starts to fade away as we're looking at this thing and we're praying and we're waiting and we're waiting and praying and then we're waiting some more and praying and for honest worrying a little. And then the Lord answers and it's as if in that moment, the rest of the blinds open and we are reminded, of course my God's a savior. Of course my God delivers. Of course my God is good. And then all these other wonderful acts of God begin rushing in. Verse five, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. And this gets back to that theme of remembering to remember. Our God is wondrous. Our God is amazing. Our God is a savior. Our God, you, you, you could begin extolling his excellencies and you would never run out of things to praise him for. And so if you're here today and you are discouraged, this isn't exactly where your heart is, the pathway is to begin to think about, talk about, tell others about the things the Lord has done to save you in your life. The things the Lord has done to deliver you. And what's going to happen is as you begin rehearsing those things in your mind, as you begin sharing those things with others, other acts of deliverance are going to come to your mind. Other great works of God, whether they're in Scripture, whether they're in your life, or in the lives of others. Other Deeds will begin to sort of connect and link until you will arrive at the place where David is, where th there's just too many amazing things about my God to even communicate. I'm going to try. I will proclaim them. But there's too many for me to speak of. And so this pious reflection then leads to personal response of David, verses 6 to 10. And what's going to happen is David is going to first commit himself individually to the Lord and then to the people of God. So we're going to have this individual to corporate movement, this the one and the many movement. As first, David in response to thinking about this, his, his heart is overflowing in wonder and awe of the wonderful things the Lord has done. Well, there has to be a response. And David knows that the response can't just be mere ritual, mere just offering a bull. He says, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. 
Your law is within my heart. So the first thing we see, God desires right hearts over right service. God desires right hearts over right service. As a faithful Israelite who has the law, David might be tempted to think, my heart is overflowing with love and gratitude and wonder at the living God. Well, then it must be appropriate for me to go give the Lord a sacrifice to sort of thank him. And it might be. But David knows that the only true and real and fitting response to who God is is giving of his whole self. The Lord desires hearts, right hearts, over right service. Turning your Bibles just a few chapters over to Psalm 51. David there says something very similar. Psalm 51, verse 16 and following. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion, in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in burnt sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You see, we mustn't understand David as simply casting off the law, as if because what truly matters is a heart, the ceremonial aspect is unimportant. In Psalm 51, he makes it clear, you're not really interested in bulls primarily, but once I have a right heart, I will do to the best of my ability those things that the law requires. But we've got to get first things first. And first things are heart changes. And so it helps us understand what he's saying here in Psalm 40. And Psalm 40 is not the abolition of the law as if you can sort of rip Leviticus and a good portion of Deuteronomy and Exodus out of your Bibles because David here says God's not into that anymore. That's not what he's saying. It's, it's hyperbole. Compared to right hearts, God isn't interested in right sacrifices. And, that, and, and that's the wonderful priority. God is after our whole beings, our hearts, and all of us. Which brings us to this next point. We must respond with our whole being to him. We must respond with our whole being to him. In the psalm, David comes and says, here I am, as if presenting himself to God for service. And then, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. It's not merely a physical service that's done begrudgingly, but he's presenting himself willingly, gladly, delighting in God's law. See, as David moves from recounting one act of deliverance to the song and the praise it puts in his mouth to others coming to faith as he dwells then on the bigger theme of how wonderful it is to wait on God encouraging us to wait on God which then leads to just all the other deliverances God has and David is just overflowing with love and adoration and he recognizes the only fitting response is my whole being my whole person Paul, in Romans 12:1 says something similarly. I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you are feeling grateful to God, if you feel as though God has done you some good, 
please don't go try to repay him. Well, I'll go do something for God. But that's not what God wants. God wants you. He wants your whole self. He wants your heart. He wants your affections. He wants your mind. He wants your desires. Oh, and once he has those, you're going to be doing all sorts of things gladly to please him. But please don't think the answer is, God did a great thing for me and I'll spend the rest of my life trying to pay him back. As if salvation and grace is a ledger that needs to be balanced. And oh, I'll never really pay it back, but hopefully I'll make a dent in it. You start thinking that way and the cross stops being a marvelous grace and it becomes a business transaction. No, God wants our hearts. He wants our whole being. And, and thirdly, in verses 9 to 10, we see that personal commitment should lead to public confession. Here's that shift. First, David commits himself individually to the living God. And then, that has consequences and implications for his relationship to the redeemed. Verses 9 through 10. I have told the glad news of your deliverance in a great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. I mean, David's emphatic. I mean, he's repeating himself. David understands that all of this commitment to God really only is true if it starts bearing fruit in his relationship to others. First and foremost, you've got to deal with God. First and foremost, your heart has to be right with him. But if that doesn't bear fruit horizontally to other people, you've got to start asking, did it ever take place in the first place? I mean, David's emphatic here. This is no small theme in this psalm, this moving to, I have to, I feel obligated, I, I, I want nothing other than to tell others what God has done for me. You need to know God's goodness in my life. Let me, let me tell you about what God's been doing this week for me. And, and this is how we encourage one another. In the New Testament, we're told in Hebrews 10, do not forsake the assembling together, as is the custom of some, but come together encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. We gather together and we encourage one another. And what is more encouraging than someone coming up and saying, rejoice with me. Let me tell you what God's done for me this week. Let me tell you about the deliverance of the Lord these last few days. Or coming up and saying, I'm discouraged, brother. Could you tell me something that the Lord has done? Help me remember the goodness of God. Share with me what God has done. There can be sort of a mock humility. A, uh, I don't want to draw attention to myself. And, and it's, it's not in God's plan. It's not in God's plan. I, I really hope today when we, when we gather in between the service and the ABF, I really hope that you would try to find somebody to talk to, to share God's blessings, or if you're feeling empty and weak, find someone to share what God's done in your life. Like that, that is what is so important about what we call coffee and donut time. It's a chance for the body to, to do this type of sharing, to do this type of encouraging. It's, it's critical and crucial for the maintenance of our faith, the building up of the body. It's, it's no small point for David. 
Personal commitment must lead to public confession, public communication. And this is, again, why the notion of of churchless Christianity makes no sense. As if you could divorce these two and just have the me and God part that never overflows to the many. It can't be done. Not in any God-pleasing way. And let me just ask one question before we sort of turn the corner to the lament part of the psalm. If you're sitting here thinking, okay, this is great. David's all overflowing, passionate. David can say, I delight to do your will, but that's not where I'm at. What about me? Well, I think David has given us a roadmap of how he got to such a state of affections. If you're sitting here and your affections for the Lord, your excitement, your zeal is low, maybe you feel like you're the one who's waiting and waiting. Follow the path David leads for us. Think of some good the Lord has done for you. Think of some act of deliverance. Maybe it's your salvation. Maybe it's some answered prayer. The Lord has done you good. If you can't think of something, think harder. And as you think about that, have, have you ever shared that with anyone? Have you ever told anyone about that? Have you ever passed that along to see what other good things God will do with it? Because God's always working many things together at once. And he wants to take your single deliverance and use it to bless others. And as you're doing that, your mind hopefully will be going to the other great things God has done. The cross, the exodus from Egypt, And time wouldn't allow for us to list all the things God has done. And as you begin to think about those things, well, your your spirit and your affections and your joy should be growing. So David has shown us how he got here. We can follow in his steps prayerfully, or we can sit back and sort of hope God will just one day zap us with love for him. Um, I would encourage us to zealously follow David's example. It starts with our individual deliverances. It moves to the people of God. It moves to a mind thinking more and more about what God has done, and that results in praise, adoration, commitment, and that praise and adoration and commitment moves to fellowship and worship. Now, what's striking about this psalm is that this first half, this, as wonderful as it is, stands in stark contrast to the remainder. In fact, the contrast really gets set up in our last chunk where David says, I have not hidden, I have not restrained. And then in verse 13, and then in uh, verse 11, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain. There's, There's a contrast here. And David goes from this mountaintop peak of just passionate love, commitment, and devotion to God to crying out for help. And this is one of the things I really find wonderful about Psalm 40, that both of these can coexist in the life of the believer. Both of them do. If you're a child of God, if you're in Christ, then to some degree you are exulting, rejoicing in God's previous work he's done for you, and yet in immediate need. We're in this cycle of praise God what he's done for me, and oh, please help me with what's to come. This is, this is where I live. And so I just take great comfort in knowing that 
On the one hand, you can just be rejoicing in God. You can be exulting in what he's done. And at the same time, be crying out, Oh God, help me. My sins have overtaken me. I'm drowning in them. David's living there. So let's read verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. And so David's present request... Firstly, we see that we are all still desperately in need of the Lord's mercy and help. We are all still desperately in need of the Lord's mercy and help. And that may come as a surprise. I mean, hasn't God given us a great salvation? He has. Hasn't God delivered us in the past? He has. Do we then desperately need his grace to come? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, we do. Now, the good news is he has promised it without measure. <coughs> And so we are in desperate need of the very thing God has promised to give. But we're still in desperate need of it. And David cries out. He's just resting his hopes on the fact that God will not restrain his love and his mercy and his kindness. He's just recounted how God didn't in the past. And it's as though that becomes part of the foundation for his present hope. The logic being, if God was that faithful to me in the past when I cried out to him, if God was that good to me last time I needed help, how much more confident should I be that this time he will continually and continue to be faithful? Part of the logic also seems to be something along the lines of, Lord, I didn't waste your grace last time you gave it. I announced it to the congregation. Many came to faith through it. I, I didn't bury your light and cover it in a bushel, but I, 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 I praised you. So please give me some more grace to do that with. And, and maybe we should be thinking, before we move on to ask for new grace, what have we done with the grace God's already given us? You know, maybe part of the reason the Lord is delaying in his deliverance, in his rescue, he wants us to learn what to do with the grace he's already given, which is pass it on, announce it, declare it, give him praise. We all desperately need the Lord's mercy and help. Secondly, we see that sin still can and does ensnare the Lord's redeemed. Sin still can and does ensnare the Lord's redeemed. verse 12. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. Again, there's a strong contrast. Just a few verses before the Lord's great acts of mercy were without number. Now David's sins are without number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails within me. It's just striking that, that simultaneously David can say, I love your law. I love to do your will. I just can't stop talking about you. And my sins are drowning me and blinding me and breaking my heart. And, and that's the beauty of this psalm, that both of these are existing in David's life and we, and we don't do ourselves any favor to champion the one piece and downplay the other as if David is just really making some pious noise about his sins. His sins aren't really that big. He's just, you know, using hyperbole. No, he uses strong language for God's deliverance and he uses strong language for his own sinfulness. 
And I think we would do well to let both ring loud and clear. Sin can, still does ensnare the Lord's redeemed. And this is important because it's tough for us sometimes to be honest about this. We, we sort of want to believe that after you become a Christian, maybe initially you struggle with some big sins. But in short order, you move on to small sins. And as you mature in the Christian faith, you just sort of deal with the day-to-day pride, day-to-day impatience, day-to-day a little bit of selfishness, but all the big bad stuff's long behind us. That's not where David's at. That's not where David's at at all. And we feel like if, if we somehow were to be honest about our struggles, somehow were to be honest about our sin, we'd be sort of letting the team down. David doesn't feel that way. I mean, understand, not only is David praying this way, but in writing this psalm, he is basically confessing his sin to everyone. Israel first, and then through Scripture, the church. And I'm not saying that, you know, that's something all of us should be doing, but James does talk about the importance of confessing our sins to each other, having people that we're talking to, being real, And we shouldn't feel afraid to be honest about our struggles with others as if somehow the reality of verse 12 negates the reality of verses 1 to 10. Because it doesn't. The Lord's people can and do struggle, and more than struggle, get defeated by sin. David is not describing a victorious fight here. He's he's describing a drowning He's not winning here. He's not saying, Lord, I put up a good fight and I'm getting tired of help. He's drowning. And blinded. And broken. And that can be okay. If we move on to point three. There's a balance here. That can be okay. If sin should greatly grieve our hearts and drive us to cry out to the Lord for deliverance. Sin should greatly grieve our hearts and drive us to cry out to the Lord for deliverance. You know, I do a lot of pastoral counseling, talking to people, and I'm far more concerned with what people do about their sin than I am with their sin. I'm far more concerned with, well, how did you respond to that failing? How did you, what did you do about that error? Than I am about what the particulars are of what they did. Because God's people fall. They, they fall hard sometimes. And I care about what you do when you get up. You know, th- th- there's a balancing act here. On the one hand, if we ignore the second point, we'll sort of end up in a nice moralism where the church is filled with relatively good people who've put all the really bad stuff behind them. And so we're just a church where our number one prayer Request is I need a little more patience, maybe a little more self-discipline, and no one's really being honest and raw. On the other hand, if we, if we lose the third point, we can sort of get to a, you know, it doesn't really matter. We're saved by grace, so, you know, oops. And we need to balance the line as David does here. He is honest about his sin, and he doesn't tell us what it is, Again, so that we can identify, I think, more fully. And it doesn't negate the first 10 verses of this psalm. You can't go back and be like, I don't think so, David. I don't think you love the Lord's law. (laughs) 
You're, you're drowning in sin, David. No, they don't cancel each other out. But what does he do? He cries out to God for deliverance. He cries out to God for salvation. He, he's broken by it. His heart is melting within him. If that's the way you are responding to your failings, praise God. And he will help. Sin should greatly grieve our hearts and drive us to cry out to the Lord for deliverance. Fifthly, David now prays for rescue. In verses 13 to 15, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! And just two points here. Pray boldly and pray often. Pray boldly. Be bold in your prayers to the Lord for help. And pray often. I mean, David has just extolled in this psalm the virtue of patiently waiting. Waiting, I waited. How blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Hurry up and help me, is his prayer. So David can see the value of waiting. He doesn't want to wait. Be bold. David does not pray, Lord, perhaps you want me to wait, and so I'm... He just, hurry up! Save me now! Now he's prepared to wait. He's just talked to us about how it can be good to wait, how there's a blessedness in trusting in God. He doesn't want to wait. It's kind of like the Lord teaching us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but James tells us that when we do enter trials and temptation... Yippee! We're going to grow. Who doesn't want to grow? But I still pray. I hope you do. Lord, lead me not into temptation. I'm not looking for trials. Pray boldly and pray often. David is a man of prayer. In Luke 18.1, Jesus setting up the story of the persistent widow, Luke writes, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And, and sometimes I think we can feel like, okay, I told the Lord what I needed. Now let's leave it be. That's not the way David prays. David's badgering God, if you will. Be pleased, O Lord, to delivery. O Lord, make haste to help me. He's bold and he's persistent. And he's our model in Scripture for prayer. Next we see we are to let the Lord be the lifter of our head. The lifter of our head. That phrase I draw from Psalm 3.3, and we'll be quick here because there's a lot of similarity. David praying about his enemies here. David praying about his enemies, enemies there. The common theme is David is not taking action. Rather, he's calling on the Lord to act. Perhaps in David's sin, some of it's public. There are some detractors. There are people who are standing on the sidelines and scoffing. And David wants it to go away. It stings. It hurts. But he's letting the Lord deal with it. He's letting the Lord be the lifter of his head. Just as he was in Psalm 3.3. And finally, in our last section, how do we balance this all out? How do we live a life where on the one hand we are exalting in God and on the other hand we are drowning in sin. Well the overall overarching balance 
should be a praise and rejoicing. Verse 16 to 17. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Two points. One, delight yourself in who God is for you and what he has done for you. That's David's prayer here. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. If you're, if you're a seeker of God, then God wants you to rejoice and be glad in him. He wants to satisfy you. He wants to fill you with joy. He wants to be your treasure and your delight. And David has left us with a roadmap of how to begin to cultivate that in our hearts through the recounting, the meditation of his great and wondrous deeds. Delight ourselves in who God is. Secondly, praise him privately and praise him publicly. Praise him privately and praise him publicly. And this shift from individual to private is seen here again. This time in reverse, as David thinks about the many in verse 16, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. He's thinking of more than just himself, but may everyone who seeks God rejoice and be glad in you. And may all those people who love your salvation say repeatedly, great is the Lord. The Lord be exalted. And we're going to do exactly that in a moment. But it's also private. Notice the individuality in verse 17. He goes from the public to the private. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought of me. That, that sentence should just blow our minds. The God who made the universe, the God who spoke creation into existence, who is currently controlling the orbit, the atoms that make up Mars, and the distant stars, and the movement of insects, and every little thing in creation, that God who is aware of it all, who is overseeing it all, thinks of me. Thinks of you. I even think he thinks of Wendell sometimes. <laughs> but that should just amaze us. That the creator of the universe thinks of us. I am poor and needy, yet the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Turn, turn to Psalm 34 as we, as we bring our service to a close. The overarching note needs to be one of praise and joy. As we balance the grieving over our sin and conviction, the overarching note is one of joy and confidence. And I want to show you another example of how private worship leads to corporate worship. Because that's what we're about to do in just a minute here. Psalm 34, verses 1 to 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. Starts privately, and he just, oh, would you please stand? Would you please sing with me? 
David just told us, let those who love his salvation say repeatedly, the Lord be exalted. That, that is what we're going to do. We're going to sing, I exalt thee.